Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Interesting things we're going to talk about this week. Uh, the tenor is a little different, um, and the and the things we're going to talk about sort of run a gambit. Although I don't know, in some ways, maybe there's an underlying unity between them. You know, you've probably seen uh, a number of different news organizations over the last week or so have been publishing this flood of text messages. I think most or all of which, you know, uh, Mark Meadows. Uh, President Trump's uh, last chief of staff is the is is the you know the interlocking character. They're all going through his uh, text messages, but they're coming from everybody under the sun. You know, everybody under the sun who was involved in the Trump coup, basically. And uh, and those have those have happened with or at the same time. I don't know if the sourcing is the same. I doubt it. Um, but with these McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy phone recordings. And the fact that they're recordings of these calls is itself a little, I, I haven't seen a lot of discussion of like, why, why were these recorded? These are really, these are really confidential conversations. And generally speaking, if things are confidential, you don't want recordings floating around. And yet there, there are significant, you know, there are lots of people on the call. So lots of people can make recordings. And I think I'm, I'm forgetting now. I mean, as a publisher, I should know this, but it hasn't, it hasn't uh, directly affected me for a long time. I think uh, Washington, D.C. is a single, single side recording law. Right. So you're on the call. You can record it. You don't have to get anybody else's permission as long as, as, long as you're on the call. Um, in any case, so and, and, and you know, the, the sort of the obvious leaker uh, was Liz Cheney. But she put out a definitive denial. I didn't record it. I didn't leak it. Nothing, nowhere. And under and unlike Kevin McCarthy, she's probably telling the truth. The thing with these, the texts and the calls, and again, I think they're they're all of a piece, even if they're coming from different sources, because they show you the real time stuff. Where even someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene's like, "Hey, this is pretty bad. They're going to shoot us. Get, you know, you need to you need to, to get a get a handle on this." And then you have you know Kevin McCarthy uh, saying, "Yeah, you know Trump should resign, and why isn't Twitter banning all my members?" You know, <laughs> before everybody got their marching orders, before everybody got their script about what they were supposed to say about this. And um, one of the things with Kevin McCarthy, first of all, he's just a liar. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of there are people who are, you know, predatory pathological liars. Lying isn't just something they allow themselves to do. It is, it is part of their essence. It is, is, is de deception and predation is kind of their thing. I don't think McCarthy's like that, but sometimes he'll get caught in an awkward thing and he'll just deny it. And then short time later, the proof will come out. And we've seen this before. You know, th this is the, the funny thing about McCarthy, one of the many funny things about McCarthy, and I suspect we're going to be talking more about him going into next year, unfortunately, but it is what it is. One of the things about him is people don't remember, not everybody remembers, that there was this leadership meeting in 2016, like the middle of 2016, maybe, I don't know, May, June, July, something like that in 2016, uh, when Paul Ryan was still the uh, Speaker of the House. And uh, I guess, I don't know, McCarthy was the whip or majority leader. I can't remember exactly. In any case, in that meeting, he said, you know, I think there's two people who Putin pays, Dana Rohrabacher and Trump. I mean it. I, I really think so. 
And uh, Paul Ryan jumps in. He's like, hey, yo, let's not talk about that. Cone of silence. We're all friends here. We're not going to, this is no, no discussing that. <laughs> and I don't think, to be clear, I don't think, um, I don't think Kevin McCarthy, you know, had just gotten some CIA intelligence briefing that he knew that Trump was on the take from Putin. I just think that a lot of people were thinking that then. And Kevin's kind of a good old boy. And that's what he thought. And he said so. And then, of course, later he was, uh, you know, Trump's best friend and the, and, and the big, you know, kind of Russia hoax guy. And with January 6th, you've had a similar thing. At the time, we know from various uh, uh, news reports, but I think pretty concretely, they had calls that day where he was telling Trump, basically, what the fuck? You need to call these guys off. Enough of this shit. And Trump, and Trump kind of famously is like, well, I think they care more than you do about the election, Kevin. And McCarthy reportedly said, you know, who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Acting like a, like a sane person would act. And even a, even a couple of days later, he was saying, you know, let's not beat around the bush. Trump is responsible for this. But that was not, that did not turn out to be the path to the future in the Republican Party. So Kevin McCarthy fell in the line and he has always been willing to do whatever is necessary to remain Trump's best friend. And the interesting thing is here, people lie. Telling a lie is, it's, it's, it's not a rare thing in the human species. People lie. He, he lied, he got caught. But the really interesting thing is what he was lying about, what was, what was so damaging, is that he was briefly off the treason wagon, right? Before he, before he went on a bender, a non-treason bender. He was saying Trump should resign. He was saying that members of the Republican caucus were inciting violence and that they should be kicked off social media platforms. That's the, that is his dark secret that he needs to lie about. Um, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the text. We're going to talk about the McCarthy thing. Uh, I think we'll talk a bit about uh, Twitter, Elon Musk, um, the ongoing uh, daily arrests of, I guess he's not arrested. That's kind of the point. Madison Cathorn, you know, the guy from North Carolina. It, every day he's getting, he's getting picked up for like, you know, driving without, I mean, if you drive without a license, you know, if you're a kind of a, a kind of an older person and look you know, unthreatening to the cops, you might be able to say, hey, I, you know, I left it at home. Give me, a, you know, give me a ticket. I'll go in and show the judge my license. You know, my, my bad. But if you're repeatedly driving on a suspended license, not like you left it at home, a suspended license, I, I, as far as I know, you get arrested for that. It's, it's like a, you're not allowed to drive. Or he's bringing like a knife to an elementary school or he's bringing a gun onto a, into an airport. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it is. It's like it's it's Goodfellas when the guy's like falling apart. But before we do, uh, let me remind you: it's peak iced coffee season, that wonderful time of the year when you start planning your next iced coffee order while walking home with your current iced coffee. This is, this is talking about me, uh, and it's all fun and vibes until your July credit card statement arrives. Luckily, there's no need to go cold turkey when saving money is as easy as switching to cold brew with Grady's cold brew bean bag kit. You can brew 36 servings of refreshing New Orleans style iced coffee for just a buck a cup. That's a major savings compared to buying at your local shop. Plus, you'll have the fridge stocked with coffee when your next craving hits, which I'm guessing is any minute now. Ready to give it a swirl? Save 25% at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, uh, Kate Riga, what 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 do we? How do we put together? All the stuff we're seeing about these texts and McCarthy and and you know almost almost like we're getting we're we're belatedly getting the slow mo you know the instant replay of January sixth you know mm -hmm. a year and a half out what's what's the story yeah well let's kind of put a bow on McCarthy before we move to the text because I agree with you they're they're very interrelated but a thing that I thought was funny that happened kind of right when the first McCarthy bomb dropped and aside. The reason we're getting it in this drip, 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 perfectly calibrated to stay abreast of the news cycle and, and, you know, to have like multiple iterations get to lead the A block of the cable news shows is because it's this 
crazily orchestrated book rollout by these New York Times reporters that I really think has not, that part of it has not gotten enough attention. I mean, it's like, we almost never get a good response to critiques of why are you guys saving this for your book? You're journalists. Isn't it your job to let us know about it as soon as you get it? And whenever those com- those comments are lodged, especially against these kind of New York Times, like big legacy reporters, it is this weird thing where they just kind of snark in response. Like Maggie Haberman is a consummate professional. How dare you, you know, critique her bona fides? It's like no one's critiquing that she's a good journalist. People are critiquing why these bombshells keep getting saved in a back pocket until they're profitable for the reporters. Yeah. So yeah. You know. Well, you know, it's it's you know another another funny thing there, and I don't, I don't I haven't thought about this dimension of it that there's there's one question, one sort of framework about the reporter and the public interest. Right. Okay. But there's another one about the reporter and the publication. Right. And that that's distinct. Um, now, the way that, you know, a lot of these big news organizations have a system where often, and this is this is for our, for our listeners, often the newspaper will kind of keep you on salary for a book leave when, in, the, in the idea that, you know, it's good for everybody. It's good, for, you know. It's, it's good for us if you write a book. Your prominence gets higher, and 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 so on and so forth. So, um, you know, the news organization has some investment in the book. Usually, not literally an investment in the book, but you know, it's good for them. It's good for the good for the publication. But at the end of the day, you know, it's it's what shows up in the in the newspaper, what shows up in your book. Um, and so there's that kind of thing too, which is which is which is less significant from a from a civic point of view but it's still an interesting question if you're in the news business right because those things are uh now i i will say this sometimes i think for our listeners sometimes the answer to that is that someone will give you something you know say it's say it's february of 2021 maybe someone will give you some recordings if you say i'm not going to do anything with it right now I'm working on a book. It's not going to come out until until 2022. And so and 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 our ground rules will be I can use it, but it will not appear anywhere for a year. Now, to the extent that to the extent that you get it under terms that require that, to me at least that's a different that's a different thing. Because you um you want to get information to the public and you have to make agreements to do it often. Um, now, if you, you know, there, there are some hypotheticals. Maybe if you found out that like, you know, uh, Donald Trump was had a, had a master plan to, to incinerate the globe by firing off all the nuclear weapons, maybe you wouldn't wait a year for that, right? Maybe you'd say, all right, uh, forget my journalism career. I'm going to break. But that's not how it works. Journalists have to make agreements to to you know to to get certain stuff. So maybe that's the reason sometimes, or maybe like you want you want your book to be really successful. And I mean, we've been talking about this book for like a week and a half. Yeah. The the other piece of that that I don't understand is like, why would you buy the book after all of its bombshells have been released pre the book's release? Yeah. Um. I, I good question. You know, I I don't I don't um. I don't read any of these books. I don't buy any of these books. So I, I kind of don't know because I because it my my um, my news consumption is highly. Uh, you know, I'm like a hunter gatherer, right? I, I I'm looking for nuggets of information. I don't really, I, I I hate reading political books. I don't I don't read any, I don't read any of that stuff. I I, I um, when I read things, I read history. Um, but I read a lot of articles looking for pieces of information, but like the narrative, you know, with all these books, you know, 90% of it is a narrative that I know, I know what happened. I was there. Right. Um, and, and I don't, I don't mean by that, that the book isn't worthwhile. Most people have lives and they, they don't spend, you know, 24 seven being immersed in the news every day. So I kind of come at it. So I don't know the answer to that, but, um, the booksellers must, you know, they're doing it for a reason. Yeah. Clearly it works. So to on the content side of it, you know, as soon as we kind of had 
these tapes come out, they were shopped around, you know, carefully to different networks and blah, blah, blah. And the immediate kind of breathless question in the morning newsletters was like, does this imperil Kevin McCarthy's bid for the speakership? You know, are his political futures, are they smoldering wrecks now kind of thing? And I was so, I guess not taking it back, but I would, like, what are we talking about? Do we all live in the same political environment? Like we, you know, and the big question kind of hung on what will be the reaction of Trump and what will be the reaction of his caucus. And on the caucus piece, it's almost like, who cares, really? I mean, you know, I understand more the idea that if Trump had gotten blisteringly mad, that could be a problem for Kevin McCarthy. But it's like, who thought that was going to happen? I mean, it's, we've seen this story before. We've seen Trump crit- critics, whether it be, you know, Lindsey Graham or J.D. Vance or whatever, do their criticism, realize that their political wagon is hitched to Trump and become, you know, wraith-like little toadies. Mm-hmm. And then he, he's happy to welcome them back. No, that, that's, that's the thing. I think it is preferable to him to have these things that 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 for Trump I mean the one thing to remember is for the other members of the caucus and for Trump Trump was on the phone call with McCarthy he knew what McCarthy was thinking at the time it's not new to Trump he knows he was you know from from everything we understand McCarthy was basically chewing him out on 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 the day of the insurrection and his uh his colleagues his his you know uh, uh colleagues in the house are they're going to know what he was saying at all caucus meetings in the days just after so it's not, it's not news to any of them and as you say for Trump Trump likes the idea of I mean McCarthy's willing, McCarthy and other people's willingness to abase themselves. Yes, I did say that, but I am so broken and, and in, in thrall to you that I will denounce myself. I denounce that Kevin McCarthy who said that terrible thing. You know, so that's even better. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it, it, if someone's like, yeah, I've always been a supporter and I'm still a supporter. Like, okay, you're just a supporter. But that doesn't mean that you, you, um, that you will like surrender all dignity to your support for Donald Trump. But, but Kevin McCarthy will. So it's great. Of course he's, you know, he loves, he even Trump even loves that thing where Trump will say, yeah, I like Kevin. Kevin's a good guy, but he keeps like, you know, the Matt Gates is out there, you know, a few of those guys to be like, Oh, Kevin McCarthy, let's bring him down. You know, just, just because that kind of, they're sort of a, uh, a chorus or a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern kind of comic relief on the side, kind of showing the, you know, what could happen if I turned against you. I'm not, I love you, Kevin, but you know what I could do. So yeah, it's all, it's, it's, he loves it. It's all part of a piece. Right. I mean, and for all intents and purposes, McCarthy's already pulled off that abasement successfully. You know, he was the first one to make the pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago after Trump kind of slunk off in the immediate disgrace of January 6th. So everyone who's on the inside of these conversations has already witnessed the progression, has already witnessed the kind of grand forgiveness. So then it leaves who of this audience is really being surprised by this. It's mostly Democrats slash people not in the Republican Party, which why would Kevin McCarthy care what any of those groups think about him? You know, the same way that he ignored all media requests to like answer for his lying to, what does he care? I mean, at this point, lying to the press is like a badge of honor for Republicans, you know, that probably is just better for him. Well, it's also, you know, to your point that the, his various self abnegations, I mean, I'm trying to think of the proper word for it, but sometimes you, you, you make a state, you know, that's all inclusive. You know, th- th- we've had several abasements that cover any and all anti-Trump thought that took place around January 6th or any time or 2016. He's already accounted for it. So you can come out with anything. He's already he, he, he's already had a quick claim on those on those on, uh, you know, on, on, on those problems. I will say this slightly different in general. I, I still basically believe this. I think that um, despite all his antics, despite the fact that maybe maybe he's going to get back on Twitter or whatever, President Trump's strength in the GOP is declining. There's no question of that. I will say this, though. This, this struck me a little bit. You know, a week or two ago, he endorsed J.D. Vance 
in Ohio, the Senate candidate in Ohio, open, oh wait, yes, open seat, uh, currently held by a Republican, open seat uh, election next year. Democrats have a pretty, you know, as 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 potential Ohio Senate candidates go, pretty good uh, candidate lined up for that race, I think. Um, and lots of Republicans, basically Republican state, Republican year, you know, Trump, uh, Vance, who, you know, was the big kind of, you know, rural rural Appalachian intellectual who realized that that meal ticket wasn't working for him anymore and became like a, a full-time hardcore Trumper. He was behind, really behind to this, this, to this ridiculous person, Josh Mandel, who's been like running for offices in Ohio for like, seems like 30 years, even though he's probably, I don't know, he's not my age, he's like 40 maybe, late 30s. In any case, like a 20-time loser. Um, he was ahead. Trump endorsed Vance and now he's ahead. I mean, it, it's turned the race around. And, and I was, honestly, I was surprised by that. Um, you know, because uh, it, it certainly looks like Trump's guy, Purdue in Georgia, Georgia is going to go down to defeat and not even close, like defeated badly. Um, and then, uh, what was it? You know, Mo Brooks, you know, Trump has had, he, he's, I'll say this for Trump, you know, one of the knocks against him, I think a fairly accurate knock, is that over the last uh, two or three cycles that he's been a part of, he generally, you know, he endorses, but he endorses when he, know, when he knows it's probably a sure thing because he wants to keep his endorsement record good, right? But recently, he's been endorsing people who are really kind of out there and do not seem like the winning candidate. Um, and at a certain level, I mean, to the extent that, um, you know, that's better than just sort of gaming it at a, in a certain way, I guess, right? Maybe. I mean, I don't know what better at what exactly, but it's but it's at least uh, a, a little more courageous. I mean, I don't know what the what necessarily the, um, you know, the ideological angle is. I mean, in, I guess that it was in Nebraska. I mean, a lot of candidates, uh, one of the things is you you should have at least a few sexual assault cases on your rap sheet, or at least accusations of sexual assault. That's a big, I mean, it, I'm, I'm, I'm only half kidding here. Like almost everybody he endorses, it turns out has a history of beating their spouse, um, groping, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like in the mafia, you got to kill someone before you're like a made man, you're for real. And in, like in the Trump world, you need to have groped some women or assaulted some women, or I don't know, sent dick pics or something like that to be real in that world. And is it Nebraska, Kate, this guy, the herpster or whatever? Um, yeah, right. Is it, I think he's running for governor or say, the guy, this guy who's running for governor or senator uh, in, I think it's Nebraska. Um, I guess he's got a Republican yeah, member of the right. state legislature who accused, who's accused him of groping her. And then- you know, once that came out, there's various other people or various other women, maybe other people who knows what I don't want to don't want to prejudge things uh, who have accused him of of groping them. And the one thing is, this is how strange these things work. I saw a headline on TPM and it says uh, it says, you know, Kellyanne Conway says they knew about the assault allegations before Trump endorsed him. And I'm thinking like, wow, Kellyanne's going rogue, you know, outing Trump. For, you know, they knew about this, but no, she's working for the candidate. So basically she's saying, no, 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 we, we went over the sexual, you know, we went over the groping allegations. Yeah. More offended, like by the implication that it's a lapse in their vetting of the yeah, candidate. Yeah, due diligence like, or something no, like we that. we knew, we knew. Yeah, of course we knew. <laughs> yeah. So um, in, anyway, the, the, the J.D. Vance thing has, has maybe dented a little bit my confidence that, that Trump himself not Trumpism, but Trump himself is a declining commodity uh, within the, you know, within within the Republican ecosystem. Yeah, it's funny. I've been working on a piece about um, big lie secretaries of state candidates and Trump's kind of <laughs> this woman that Trump endorsed in Michigan in September, who has essentially no political experience whatsoever and was kind of a non-entity, but 
rose to prominence in the kind of Fox Newsian world because she had volunteered as a poll worker in Detroit and was just willing to basically make shit up. And so they put her on TV and But she's not that one that Giuliani was 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 together with. Is is she the one um, remember the remember the blonde with you know kind of the, No, that's not okay. Her. Okay. Uh, her name is Christina <laughs> Caramo. Um and she's like nutty, 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 even by these standards. I mean, she's like an MTG figure, you know, who talks about, like she's studied uh, uh, Christian apologies as, as her kind of subject matter. And then she has a podcast and she talks about how, you know, premarital sex is uh, a tool of Lucifer and fornication and grooming and what what has become a pretty standard thing for really these like the sect of super Christianity that's just like singularly focused on kind of sexual sins and almost to the exclusion of basically everything else but so she was like this non-entity you know just willing to be kind of a whack ball for the cause and she one at the Republican convention last weekend. So they don't have primaries there for secretary of state. So now she's going to be the Republican nominee going up against Jocelyn Benson, whose profile kind of rose amid all the 2020 stuff. Wait, who is the current AG not running again? This is for secretary of state. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Secretary of state. Got it. Got it. it. Um, Cause the, uh, what is the, the current AG? Wait, new, um, Dana. I, this is, I, I shouldn't do, yeah, uh, I shouldn't do, because, you know, I, I don't remember every name, but she was very prominent. I, I, not perfect, but I remember very well her role in, obviously, Michigan was, you know, kind of big lie ground zero. Um, yeah. And she played a key role, I guess, not as Secretary of State, but, you know, obviously, AG gets in the, in the, in the mix. It's, it's, it's always an interesting thing because, um the whole GOP obviously has a lot of interest in making sure there's a Republican Secretary of State in Michigan for all the reasons we know. They don't necessarily have an interest in having someone like truly insane who's going who's gonna to lose because of it. Now, Republican year, a lot of people can, you know, even I, who's, is, who's so, I don't even always know kind of everybody who's running in New York state. I mean, I, I do, but I'm not, I'm not that deep into it. So lots of people do not have any idea who's running for attorney general, the state or secretary, or even what those people do. Um, but sometimes if you're kind of a professional party person, you want to make sure you get, you know, someone who's on board for some funny business, but not out there saying, uh, you know, Lucifer's making you, uh, you know, making you have sex with your live-in girlfriend or whatever, right? <laughs> just just kind of totally nutty stuff. So yeah. um, I yeah. guess we'll see how no, that No, that's true. Out. Yeah, and just my point there was like, that is a level where Trump so far has been kind of a kingmaker. Like he's getting his pick of the litter in these, in the states where who is secretary of state is going to matter. You know, Arizona, right. Georgia, Michigan. He has been, right. and I think part of that is probably just a matter of like, there wasn't that much involvement in these races before Trump decided to care a lot. So he probably does have a little more leeway to be like, he, this is my guy rather than on a, you know, a Senate level where there's going to be a ton of investment from right, party leadership. Right, right. Well, I think also the other, the other thing is that if you, if you actually want to administer elections in an actual sense, and you're Republican. I don't think you want to run for Secretary exactly. of State. That is totally thankless. I mean, we it's saw a what happened. Job. <laughs> yes, exactly. We saw what we saw what happened to the guy in Georgia. You know, pretty hardcore Republican, but he just wasn't willing to falsify the vote totals. And suddenly he's like Joe Resistance and, you know, QAnon's all over the guy. So if it's sort of almost inevitable that the people who are running for the the Republicans who are running for those offices now are going to be totally nuts because if you're not totally nuts, it is a totally thankless job, totally thankless. You do not want to do that. So I would I would almost be surprised if there are, if there are any non crazy Republicans who who and and again the standard is low these days, right? I mean, <laughs> let's put it this way. I would be surprised if there are any non-aggressive big lie people running for those offices as Republicans. Almost every Republican is like passively big lie. Oh, there were 
questions, blah, blah, you know, blah, 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 what you can hear from almost every Republican senator. But I mean, big lie, big lie, because then why would you run for it? Why would you, why would you run to be Republican secretary of state or attorney general of Michigan if you were not basically ready to do anything to switch the votes? You know, asking for trouble. Yeah, I've been thinking about that, too, a lot with like the Democratic response to this, which has been, as far as I've seen, primarily from the group run for something, which is like really focused on these kind of administrative races. But there's such a downside in having what is kind of like a paper pushery administrative job turned into this political hotspot because the people who would do it well are not going to want to be Brad Raffensperger having to start his car remotely out of a fear of car bombs. <laughs> so I hadn't heard that. I hadn't heard yeah. that. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but I hadn't heard that. It's insane. Okay. That was such a massive tangent. We are now, <laughs> I don't even know how we got on this from Kevin yeah, McCarthy. Well, it, was, it was Trump. Wait, what, what, what were we on? You, the listener, can rewind. You can't rewind. <laughs> yeah. um, wait, hold on a second. Let me. Let me. So, oh well, we started with the with the texting stuff and Trump and and Kevin McCarthy, and then we went off, or I took us off into uh, other Trump stuff, and yeah. that's how we got there. Well, let's. And now is Trump kind of, still a kingmaker, basically? Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, so let's loop back to the other piece of all these January 6th stuff that's come up, which, as you said, are all these texts through which Mark Meadows is the conduit. Um, you know, there were thousands of them that I guess CNN got their hands on from the January 6th committee. And there was, you know, all the usual suspects are there. You've got your nutty Congress members. You've got, you know, Ted Ted Cruz and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Jim Jordan, and then you've got Sean Hannity, and then you've got the cute little group chat of all the Trump family members. So, you know, my initial takeaway when I was reading through this is this guy is texting people all the time. <laughs> As someone who's basically a grandma with technology, I'm like, that alone would make me not want to do that job. But, you know, the big news of it well, the way it's been framed is kind of here's the behind the door reaction to before January 6th. This kind of is all starting up even before the election is formally called and then builds into this crescendo on January 6th where all these people are like, uh, there are people with guns in here. Call them off. Um, but I thought the more interesting part than that, because of course they're scared. I, I don't think that's not a revelation to me. Of course they're scared. You've got like angry people with guns storming their workplace, whether or not they're kind of a party to that seems besides yeah, you, you the can point. Be all, to me. You can be all for, I mean, if, uh, you can be for a war, but if it gets to you, you're still uh, I, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to get shot, right? I mean, it's, exactly. It's 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 that there's not a there's not really a disconnect. I mean, I guess you can say like you know, don't encourage you know paramilitary invasions of the capital because you work there, and it may get weird. You know, it's kind of obvious, but yeah, it's it's not surprising. It doesn't yeah. make them hypocrites, it, you know. Exactly, it makes them more self interested, but yeah. that's Which not, is a revelation. not a surprise. Right, yeah, right, right, right. The right. thing about the text that struck me the most is while they're kind of trying to gin up a conspiracy, while they're still in that stage of looking for something "quote unquote" kind of solid to use, there is more credulity than I would have expected in terms of the fraud being done. Like there's this, there's a text from Jared Kushner where he passes along basically a fact check of one of those early days conspiracies where there were like suitcases of ballots in Georgia. Um, there's an exchange with Mark Meadows and Ginny Thomas, wife of sitting Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, back at it again, where she's like, I don't understand your distancing from Sidney Powell. And he's like, well, she doesn't have anything or she has something she's not telling us. And that was so striking to me because even if it might not really matter in the end, I'm like really fascinated with what is belief and what is political expediency and where that line is. And there is a sense in these texts that at least for a time, Mark Meadows was kind of earnestly looking for some election fraud, you know, I clearly you wanting it for political expedience, but there is a right. sense that it's not something that he's completely 
like, oh, we know this is bullshit, but we need to do this. And that is like kind of alarming and fascinating to me. And I guess it makes sense if you are steeped in this stuff constantly, if you're in a media ecosystem that is steeped in this stuff, I mean, I guess at some point you do start to drink the Kool-Aid a little bit. Yeah. And and I I mean, this is, I, I think people, lots of people greatly understate, underestimate the part of this that is real belief. And we have a, we have a, uh, we have a, a kind of in, in our, in our public political discourse, we have a kind of naive conceptual understanding of what belief is. A lot of times you believe things because they are helpful to you to believe them, but you also kind of believe them, right? There's not these, these, you know, there was kind of a moment, uh, when Bill Barr, when Trump made Bill Barr, um, attorney general, when that happened, I was kind of in the, I didn't have high hopes. I didn't think, oh, he's an institutionalist, blah, 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 blah. But I thought he would, he's someone who has a reputation. He, you know, he'll do some funny business, but not the big funny business. Because why should he do that for Trump? Who the fuck is Trump, right? Um, but at a certain point, it occurred to me, and maybe someone said this to me, or maybe it just occurred to me, kind of like, what about him being a 70-something white, Catholic, conservative, Fox News-watching man made you not think he's another 70-something dude who watches Fox all day? Of course he believes this stuff. And, and kind of like it was, a, it was a revelation to me. I don't know if it was a self-revelation or someone said, but, but of course he believes it. What would, what, what would it be about him? He's the demographic. Of course he believes it. And, it, you know, it is a complicated thing because um, you believe things that are, that allow you to do things you want to do. And, 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 you know, we have this kind of, you know, Lockean kind of understanding that there's things I, I believe are true. And based on the things I believe are true, I take certain actions based on my, you know, there's the external stimulus. I make my rational judgments and then I move on to action. Well, <laughs> that's not how anything works. We have, we have drives. We have things that we want to be true. And then we backfill the things that justify them. And, and, you know, and, and it's in that kind of cloudy, murky space of bad faith that, you know, do you really believe that? Really believe that? You know, sort of like... Um, you know, do you really believe big science and the public health establishment? Well, you know, y- your parent has cancer. You're going to believe the oncology establishment? Well, yeah, almost everybody does. When, when it really comes down to it, you see what people really believe. But, you know, there was, uh, I don't think we've talked about it explicitly. There was that, you know, that Rep Perry guy, you know, the guy, there was other thing uh, last night. This is a guy who's, uh, he's now the head of the Freedom Caucus. I don't think he was head of Freedom Caucus then. He's, you know, just in this Congress, uh, been in Congress for 10 years or so, um, is on the uh, Foreign, Foreign Affairs Committee in the House. And some of these texts are him saying, hey, you got to get you got to get John Ratcliffe. And again, John Ratcliffe was another House Freedom Caucus guy who Trump, you know, grabbed out of the House because he was saying nice things about Trump and put him in charge of the entire U.S. intelligence apparatus. He was saying, hey, you got to get the NSA to pull the communications for Dominion about the voting machines because, you know, China hacked them and the British were helping them. And, and there was also the Italians and a satellite. And this guy was saying, hey, you got to get them on this case. This is real. And like, <laughs> you know, he wasn't, he wasn't going on Fox. I mean, he's probably also going on Fox News and saying it. Certainly seems like he thought there was gonna, they were going to find the mother load and was going to show that, that, you know, Biden didn't win. It was all like a Chinese hacking conspiracy. So a lot of it is belief, even if it's a kind of a, a supremely self-interested, you know, kind of belief. Yeah, I think that's right. Let's wrap in here a question from Paul who says, it was previously fascinating to see some Republicans seem genuinely shocked at January 6th, issuing condemnations only to turn around quickly and go right back to supporting Trump. But now that we see in the new text, we know there's an extra step in that process. A bunch of them were actively involved in the coup from November 4th to January 6th. So when the insurrection happened, they weren't caught off guard and completely 
surprised, they instead were upset that the plan seemed to have gotten excessively unruly, or they got upset that members of Congress might get hurt. That means a pivot isn't Trump did a bad thing that upset me, but I got over it. But rather, I participated in the coup that got uglier than I, ex- I anticipated. But the very worst didn't happen. And anyway, the coup failed. Yeah, I think I'm not sure it's linear like that. I, I think that my sense is, yes, a lot of the sort of the hardcore people were, you know, involved in the preparations for the coup, trying to make the coup happen. And then trying to wrap January 6th into the coup as the sort of the last chance. But some things are a little more intense when you see them, right? And I think it's also important to say that the number of, we're talking about a pretty small number. I mean, I'm not like defending the House caucus, but when we see these emails, we're talking about a pretty small group of people. You know, there are, there are a little more than 200 um, House Republicans. And, and, you know, 90% of this is, is like a dozen people. So a lot of people who are out there saying this can never happen again, they, they weren't participating now. They weren't doing enough to stop it. But I mean, it's, it's not all the same people. Um, but the other thing about, you know, kind of like the condemnations and now they're totally, you know, uh, uh, down with it. It's a really good example of the way we operate within certain permissioning structures. And that deeply shapes what we think, what we say. And there was a, an interval, of a, a very short interval uh, during and after January 6th, when I think almost everybody across the political spectrum was operating on this idea that is totally beyond the pale, unacceptable, gross, illegal, anti-American, even like the foxes and stuff were kind of, you know, sort of on that on that page. And um, so most Republicans were saying that, you know, or a lot of them were. Um, and then the permissioning structure changed and it, and it became, again, one of those things where what you say about January 6th is, you know, places you in the, um, you know, that identifies you in the great American polarization, you know. Are you a woke lib or are you, are you, you know, a conservative? And that, it got, it got put back in there as opposed to something that just like the consensus, everybody agrees. Everybody agrees that like, uh, uh, you know, pedophilia is wrong. Everybody agrees that, that, you know, in the American political, Al-Qaeda was bad. It was, you know, kind of in that thing where it is not part of the discussion. And then it just became part of the discussion. And uh, and everybody falls in line with that. It's kind of yeah. how it works. It's why I've kind of long thought that it was such a mistake not to capitalize on January 6th right when it happened. And by capitalize, that sounds more kind of political expediency than I mean. But the hours after it happened, it felt like there was actually potentially room and space for a shift in the Republican Party. I mean, in that in the immediate aftermath, kind of before, right before the electoral count, the, before Congress regathered and did their votes, and you still had like, you know, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, but you had other people peel off, other people who were kind of extreme Trump people still be like, no, I, I'm not doing this anymore. There was this really brief and fleeting window before, as you say, before things kind of concretized. And everyone fell back into their line where the overwhelming feeling was just horror because it was scary and it was violent and symbolic and everything else. And that horror, I think, was pretty unifying, even for nutso people who wanted to overturn the election. And that's why I've I've just continued to think that it was a mistake not for Democrats not to like I don't know, start impeachment that night, you know, just just act on it. And maybe it maybe it wouldn't have mattered. Maybe people well, would try, have followed. I'm trying to remember he was impeached pretty quickly. It was the yeah. trial that that they delayed. Yeah. Right. That's right. Right. And, and the key point was that they delayed it until after he was out of office, sort of largely with the prodding of Mitch McConnell. But I think at least that some of that was that there were. Uh, Democrats or people in the White House kind of like, you know, why, why are we, uh, you know, raining on Joe's parade, right? Let's, let's have a kind of, I, I, I don't even, I remember it, I'm trying to, 
I guess there was I guess there was this thing where as I remember this that there was real question whether that was a question that made any sense to have whether Trump would in fact be removed from office. You know, that was that was considered a real thing. Like bizarre as it is, if everybody remembers, uh, Mike Pence had to put out a statement after a day or so of not speaking about it saying he would not invoke the 25th amendment to remove Trump from office. That was considered a serious enough thing that he had to put out a statement saying definitively that he would not, which is, you know, weird because again, that's not even what the 25th amendment is for. It's it is for an incapacitated president, a medical incapacitation. Remember, it's a post Kennedy assassination thing. But I think I think one of those things was Republicans saying, "Hey, we need to we need to kind of process this if we're going to remove him from office." And you know, there was sort of some game playing there. But I I do think I think most Republicans didn't quite. I think most Republicans were highly surprised at how rapidly Republican opinion congealed behind, you know, Antifa mob, time to move on, you know, every other excuse that you remember why it doesn't matter. That's true. And I mean, maybe if they had acted immediately, it wouldn't have mattered. People would have fallen back into their camps quickly. But there there was a stretch. There was a time where Trump was an outcast. That time was only like a week or 10 days long, but there was a window. And it does kind of tie in with my bigger critique of Democrats on this, on January 6th, on kind of the, the big tent of Republican authoritarianism, corruption stuff, which is there's this need to be circumspect and to kind of make sure that we've thought everything through before they act in the Democratic Party a lot. And I think that has contributed to this Republican effort to put January 6th in the past, to recast it as something that wasn't as violent and scary as it was. All of that stuff. I mean, now, it, you know, the January 6th committee has kicked back the public hearings until June. It, part of a string of delays there, you know, we're there's been a lot of critiques of kind of where the Department of Justice is on this. Have they, ex have they explained the reason for the, for the I don't think delay? so. Just, it's delayed. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm sure they want to be circumspect and careful, but first of all, you don't, you don't have to hold hearings on the whole enchilada. You know, you can hold hearings on various parts of it. Yeah. I, I don't really understand why you wouldn't just start holding. I mean, a lot of stuff, a lot of texts. Right. A lot of people. Well, I, Plus, I it could be effective for people who are being reluctant to be witnesses. If you get someone else in who's like, well, yeah, it's all this guy's fault. I had nothing to do with it. Now, maybe that guy's going to be like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, the, you know, there, there are a lot of them are no longer. There used to be people in the House and Senate who were really good at, at holding hearings. And when I say when I say hearings, I don't mean the gotcha stuff. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, I love that stuff too. But there were people like Henry Waxman who did hearings on, you know, kind of like corporate malfeasance and drugs that had bad side effects and cars that blew up and all that kind of stuff. But where you where you have a hearing where you are actually, it's it's always been theater at some level. You know, you mostly know what the people are going to say before you ask them. But in a lot of these, there's actual evidentiary stuff you're getting. So you start them and you're, you're going to hold hearings till you get to the bottom of it, right? So you don't know how long it's going to last or when, you know, and that's a better way to do it. Um, now, I don't want anybody to be, you know, it's never, it's not a Perry Mason thing. You've got staffers who are, in, you know, in, in many cases who are interviewing people you know, prepping interviews. So you kind of know what, certainly with friendly witnesses, but you still do find things out. And again, I don't, it's not like there's not a lot of stuff to discuss or not a lot of documents or, or not a lot of people to talk to. I mean, you know, frankly, why not call up all the arrestees? They're not pretty people. Either they're, they're, <laughs> I, I mean, pretty in a loose sense, they're kind of angry extremists and freaks. 
So it's not like they're, you know, kind of good propaganda for the, for the, uh, you know, for the insurrection. So yeah, I don't, I don't know why you're putting it off. Do you, do you need to, I guess, because you feel like you need to kind of get to the bottom of everything before you do a public presentation, but I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. Also, this is just not, I don't know if it's a case where there's a bottom to get to, you know, it's, we've talked about this before, but some of the difficulty I think in investigating Trump is that in your usual kind of corrupty type things, you start with the foot soldiers and you see how high up it went. The problem with Trump is we've always known that it emanates from the top. So trying to work on this reverse period, uh, reverse pyramid scheme is kind of why, you know, no, he's that, been that's pretty always, open about it. <laughs> that's always been, and not just on this, but in the earlier rushes and all sorts of in all sorts of the different Trump scandals, that has always been this kind of weird irony because, as you say, it's always both as an investigative thing and as a scandal thing, does it go to the top? Usually the Trump scandals start with Trump just <laughs> doing it in front of everybody. So it's kind of – so it, 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 we, don't need, we don't know if it goes to the bottom. Right, we, it's not the top, and and in some ways that's almost they they try to make that exculpatory, like he didn't even know what he was doing. The bottom people didn't know to tell him it wasn't okay, so it doesn't matter. So yeah, I, I don't um, I don't know about that. I don't I don't know where that leaves us, but it's certainly true that you know you're not going to get to the bottom of it. So why not just do as much in public as 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 possible. Right. Before Republicans potentially win back the House and shut it down, you know, we're on a bit of a ticking clock here. Yeah. I mean, potentially is doing a lot of work, but we can get to that (laughs) at a different time. All right. Okay. So, so quickly, what what is your sense on the Twitter stuff and the Elon Musk thing? I, I did a post on it, but what's your, what's your, where are you on this? All right. I'm sure you have deeper thoughts than me because this is like my, whatever the opposite of a sweet spot story is where I largely hate everything involved. So I like pay minimal attention. Like I think I don't like Twitter. It doesn't make me happy. I use it because it's part of our profession and that's about it. Elon Musk sucks largely. So I'm kind of like, I think it's a good thing to generally not like Twitter and just like this is just a in a way this is a roundabout my post is a roundabout way of saying the same thing. It's not the public square. It's an app that is that was owned by people on Wall Street and now it's owned by one guy in Silicon Valley and like whatever. And even like frankly even the thing about like if they let Trump back I, I don't really care frankly. I'm not afraid of Trump. What Trump represents is very dangerous. I'm not afraid of his words. We had him on Twitter and he was driven out of office. Um, so I, I, my sense is that the um, you know, paradoxical plus side of this is that it kind of knocks down, at least to, the, to a degree, the idea that, that Twitter is the town square and that is kind of, and no, you know, this, this bad man has, it now owns the town square and he's going to, you know, turn it back over to, uh, uh, you know, all the bad stuff, but it's just an app. And I, and, and I, I, the real digital town square is the internet, the open internet and anything that pushes us back in that direction, at least has some good, uh, dimensions to it, even if it, um, you know, even if it's sort of uh, uh, nasty and bad in a lot of ways, which is a good description of Elon Musk. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've seen the criticisms of like, should Trump be let back on Twitter? He's going to go back to his role as assignment editor for all the major news outlets. And there's a lot of very, very valid media criticism to be made about the coverage of Trump. But you know, during the time that he was the assignment editor, most of it, he was president. You got to cover what the president yeah. does, even if it's insane. And especially if it's insane, you know, you should be responsible enough to write about it in a way that underscores the insanity. But also this kind of notion that should Trump be left back on Twitter, he will have this great pull over the media. He does have pull over the media because he's got pull over one of our major parties. I mean, we're already at a place where if Trump makes endorsements, that's news. You know, if Trump, you know, when he kicks Mo Brooks out on the street and throws his clothes out the window of the apartment, that's news. I mean, Trump is news because he's he's a major player in our political scene. So to me, I, I think all these kind of deep takes about 
It'll remind people how insane Trump is, or it'll give him prominence in our political sphere. It's all silly. He's already got that stuff, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I think this is, this is in many ways the, the best critique of the part of liberal progressive thought that is, that is in a sense trying to, you know, who should be allowed on Twitter? Is that, you know, are, are certain things too dangerous to have on Twitter? It's not so much, it, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm not terribly impressed by the, th- by the free speech critiques, but there is a fair amount of self-deception in the idea of, well, if we can just, if we can just sort of, you know, make clear who, who the good people talking and bad people talking, well, as you said, when Trump was president, he was president. That was the reality. Saying he couldn't be on Twitter, or or saying that you had to, um, you know, screen capture his tweets and not retweet. Them. Like he's president. He controls the nuclear weapons. He can veto stuff. That's reality. And as you say, he's still the leader of the Republican Party. It, you know, there is this kind of. And I don't want to say that's all of it. There there are good points wrapped up in this thinking. But there's also a lot of sort of ostrich with, with your head in the sand idea. If I just don't listen to it, it will not exist. Well, that's not true because other people are listening. And sometimes you're not listening just means you're surprised when everything goes bad. Yeah. I mean, I think in the other piece of this has been when Elon Musk takes the wheel, you know, Twitter will be flung wide to kind of the cretinous harassers of the internet, blah, blah, blah. And to that, I'm like, what world are you guys living in? Because Twitter's like that already. Like, I mean, I have, you know, a quite a modest following and I still get shit on every single thing I ever post. I mean, it's, that's just the world we yeah. have allowed on, we have decided that in our internet interactions, you are allowed to be hostile and unfair and you should never ever give anyone the benefit of the doubt. And if the person posting is a minority, you are free to go after that as well. And there is very little you can do about it. I mean, that's the internet. So this kind of idea that Elon Musk is going to set loose Pandora's box is like, it's been loosed. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, there's exactly there, you know, and, and Twitter is, really the lightest in its touches about all this kind of stuff. You know, paradoxically, Facebook, there's a lot more that Facebook restricts, not things that some of the people who listen to this podcast necessarily care about. But, you know, uh, I don't know, just just lots of things that just are not allowed to be, you know, on on, on Facebook. I mean, the, the the real story is that Twitter has always been on pretty much under tech libertarian management. And over the last five or six years, it got into, you know, some stuff. If you, if, if, you know, if you were putting, saying that like, you know, COVID is actually fine, go out and get COVID. They'd put a little thing, hey, listen to the CDC about COVID. It's dangerous. You know, okay, whatever. So yeah, it's not like um, it sucks as it is. And if, and if you feel like it sucks, don't go on it. It's again, it's just a company. It's just a private company. It's not the town square. Honestly, the my biggest takeaway from this whole thing is just the amount of kind of moral vacancy that Elon Musk has to have to have forty four billion dollars to spend and to spend it on this. I mean, like that that does fundamentally blow my mind. That's enough money to, if not cure, severely help some societal ills. And it's kind of wild to me at this point that you're like, nah, I'm going to, I'm going to buy Twitter. (laughs) Well, up until just a few years ago, that was the scale of the largest private wealths of anybody in the world. You know, just, just a few years ago, you know, uh, uh, Warren Buffett, um, Bill Gates, they were all in the, you know, 60 billion, 70 billion, 80 billion. So a little more, but I mean, it's almost like that. And I, and I guess he has something like 250 billion. I mean, largely because I think infl- the inflated stock price of, of Tesla, but still that's where he, that's where he is right now. Um, and you know, I, I think this is, this is basically just an ego trip for him. And like, you know, look, <laughs> when you have $250 billion, you can do all, you can, you can have some crazy ego trips, right? You can do some crazy shit. That's an, that, that is a crazy, crazy, crazy amount of money. I know. I just wish his ego tripping was more in the direction of like, 
I will single-handedly fix climate change or something. <laughs> everybody's got their everybody's got their thing, right? Yeah. That's not his thing. Yeah, and you know, my my own uh, personal sense is that he'll rue the day because this is a company that is really thankless to run. Um, everybody considers them themselves a stakeholder. It doesn't make money, and that that that's a thing. It doesn't make money. So, um, you know, good luck owning it. Why, why do you own it if it doesn't make money? So, uh, I, I think he, you know, I think the joke may be on him, but there'll be a lot of, uh, you know, uh, digital carnage on the way there. Uh, I guess Madison, what is there to say with Madison Cawthorn except know. he gets just, arrested every day? I just or, thought we could end on this perhaps higher note. Of yeah. Just the astonishment that one manages to run afoul of the law so frequently and in much the same ways over and over and over again. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get the driving thing. Like you have a suspended, it's not like he's, you know, con remember Congress can have someone drive them around. Right. I, I don't, I don't completely get that. And I also, with the gun, I mean, I, I, I do wonder if he's, he seems like he's on one of those kind of bad trajectories, right? Where something not Something's great happens. Weird. Yeah. Like you're kind of out of control. Um, and yeah. I, I don't, but maybe that's just how he rolls. I mean, it's been this way in a way for a while, but it does seem like it's accelerating. Yeah. It's just funny. Cause like I am someone who takes all of my toiletries and like, you know, uses a magnifying glass to make sure they're under three ounces. And then he's like going through the security multiple times with a loaded gun and thinks that I that'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, I guess if you, um, I guess different people deal with firearms in different ways. For, to me, carrying a gun would be a pretty big deal. Right. And I would assume if I was taking a gun through like a TSA checkpoint, they wouldn't just say, oh yeah, I can't have the, the loaded gun. I would, I would expect everybody to come out at me with like machine guns exactly. and tell me to, to get on the floor or something like that. Yeah. I got I don't, like taken I, out of line one time because like the fibers in my skirt were like in some way metallic or something. And it was like a whole to do. And I'm just like, I don't know. It's so weird. It's so weird. And, you know, I, I do want to get in this Politico criticism before we wrap, which is that there is clearly a mountain of things that you can criticize Madison Cawthorn on. And it did you see this that weird political thing they ran of him in Andre? That was so that was so weird. I, so I weird. Yeah. And I mean, I looked at it and I was like, okay, okay, am I missing what is the newsworthiness of this? And then, you know, the deck of the piece was like, he has accused Republicans of inviting him to cocaine-fueled orgies. And it's like yeah, and so so the connection to this is that he has been to parties <laughs> and other and just for our listeners, if you didn't see it, it was basic. I think it was actually on a cruise ship, like a cruise ship kind of dress yeah. up gag. It was him. He was wearing uh, lingerie, but not you know, in a kind of a, a guy in drag. Yeah, it, that that's just not a big deal. It's kind of and and I don't know if this was the kind of the point of the people who leaked it, but but I saw in like the commentary, like, well, you know, he's talked a lot about transgender and now he's like no dude dude no like say what you want with him about him with trans but this has nothing to do i mean nothing to do with anything and uh you know a little embarrassing i guess but like who cares completely who cares um and yeah i i think you know i i think the thing is here is that republicans want him out yep and in the republican psyche that is kind of embarrassing. You know, you dressed up as a girl. You know, what are you, gay? You know, that kind of... What, are you a groomer? Yeah, exactly. So, so, uh, but but I, I don't know why that was weird. That was just... It was a weird choice about a weird person who's already doing a lot of weird stuff. And I just, there was really no need to make this tenuous grab at some like pretty homophobic news to be like, oh, look at him. He's strange. It's like, first of all, that's not really, that's the least of the strange things he does. So. And, 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 and the thing is that it is, there's, there's a long, you know, there's a famous video of Trump and Rudy Giuliani oh, in drag gosh, yes. from like 25 years ago or something like that. Wow, I forgot and, that. And 
men dressing up in drag, the, e- even in the bad, bad, super homophobic days, that was something that men did as a gag. And people didn't think they were gay. People didn't think they were secretly trans. It just, it's, it's just not a thing, right? So um, even in a much more, even in a much more backward time, that was just, you know, Bob Hope dressed up in drag on his specials and stuff like that. It's just a, it, I do wonder, I, I wonder if it was one of these things where whoever leaked it to them, and I, I guarantee you it was Republican opposition research, whoever, they like got it to like a weekend editor of Politico who went with it because I have lots of criticisms of Politico, but they're not idiots. And that just like, what are we talking about? What, what is that about? You know? So anyway, so uh, I'll tell you what it is about is you got to remember that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can save 25% at Grady's Cold with promo code TPM. That's Grady's Cold with promo code TPM. And I think that's right. it. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.